Good morning, Faith Presbyterian Church. This morning's reading comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 96. In the Pew Bible, it's found on page 499. In the following Jesus Bible, it is found on page 616. And it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the, Lord, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with uh, equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under, um, they can now go line up with Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah as they go to children's worship. Thank you to all of you who helped yesterday with building furniture for the new children's building. We can't wait until it's opened. We're waiting on a little bit of door hardware to come in before the fire marshal will give us our occupancy license. So we are so close, it's frustrating. <laughs> so thank you for, for those of you who served yesterday. So last week we began a new sermon series entitled Playing Your Part in the Redemption of St. Tammany. And we talked about two challenging ideas. The first challenging idea is that based upon current census records and my best estimates from it, at least half of West St. Tammany doesn't know Jesus. So on average, every other person you talk to, one out of two people in your workplace, in your classroom, in your neighborhood, doesn't know Jesus. It's not just that they don't go to church or that they don't read their Bible. They've not heard the gospel clearly. They do not have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. So that's the first challenging idea that we encountered. Uh, but the second one was this. It's our responsibility to own that. I'm not saying we blame ourselves for the state of things. I'm just saying it is that now, so let's own it now. It is what it is. 50% of our neighbors don't know Jesus. So what are you and I going to do about that today? The responsibility of addressing a community's lostness falls not on the lost, it falls on the found. It falls on we who have received the gospel, who have believed the gospel. We're the ones who know God. And I challenged you, I think this is from the Lord, that we would let 2023 be the year in which we own the lostness of St. Tammany Parish in a meaningful, actionable way. 
that every one of us will, will have a clear vision of our part, the thing that we are supposed to be doing in the broader work of the church to reach our neighbors for Christ. And it's going to look different for all of us. But why would you do that? Why would you change the patterns of your life to accommodate the spiritual needs of your neighbors? Because ultimately, that's what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to be challenging you and inviting you to disrupt the status quo of what you do in your daily life and what I do in my daily life so that we can attend to the spiritual needs of our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors. And that's going to mean trouble for us. So if we're going to go to that trouble, better be for a good reason. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that people are lost? Why does it matter that they don't know Jesus? Well, if I polled the congregation, if I talked to all of you and gave you a chance to answer that question, why does it matter? I bet the most common, if not unanimous answer, would be something like this. Well, it matters because people are going to hell. Uh, Maybe you would be uh, a little less intense and you would say something like, well, it matters because we should have concern for our neighbors, right? Both of those answers are good answers. They're appropriate answers. They're correct. uh, They're even biblical. But I want to argue this morning that there's an even more fundamental reason why we should care. There's an even more fundamental reason why we as a church should care about the lostness of St. Tammany. There's a more fundamental reason for you to play your part in the redemption of St. Tammany. Well, what could be more foundational, more fundamental than love for neighbor? What could be more important than a person's eternal state, right? That that their souls be saved. The more fundamental thing is reality. Our mission to the lost should be motivated first by reality. Second, by neighborly concern. And what in the world does that mean? How does, how does reality urge us to care for our neighbors who are lost? Well, the first person that I heard made this point, make this point was an Australian pastor named John Dixon in his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. I, sh- I wonder if I have my copy up here. It's possible. I have my bag here. Well, I don't have it. If you're going to hear so much about this book, you're going to wish you just bought it and read it. Um, if you want to get a copy of it, let me know. I'll see if we can get some kind of group discount or something. It's a really, really good book. Um, Dixon said this as he was contemplating this very idea that reality is the motivation for our mission. And, And this is how he put it. Why promote Christ to your atheist friend with a nice car and the self confidence to match? That seems like his life's going pretty good. Not simply because he would be happier or more fulfilled with Jesus, but because in reality, Your friend belongs to the one true Lord. That's reality. He belongs to God and the the Lord who's revealed in the gospel. Why take the gospel to cynical retirees with a lifetime of worldly experience and a fat nest egg to enjoy? You know, their, their life seems pretty great. Not simply because they will soon face eternity, but because right now, in reality, they exist for the pleasure of the one true God. Why reach out to the super student with the first-class honors degrees and wardrobe of designer clothes? Not simply because Christianity will make her more moral or productive in life, 
but because in reality she is the possession of her one and only king. Why send out and support missionaries in Burkina Faso? Not only because Asians and Africans need rescuing from God's judgment as we all do, but because they too are creatures of the one creator and he alone deserves their worship. What's Dixon saying? He's saying that the first impulse behind Christian mission, whether it's foreign missions or church planting or just a conversation between you and an unbelieving friend, the first impulse is actually not love for neighbor, concern for their souls. The first impulse, the, the fuel that gets this engine running is this idea. Yahweh God made all things. And because he made all things, he owns all things. And as a result, all creation should obey him. And more than that, he's glorious. All creation should worship him. Everything that exists in reality exists for him and for his glory. That's reality. That's just the, the, like the bedrock of existence and creation. And that is the primary thing that should be urging us toward mission. That's a different way to think about things, isn't it? It's a different way to think about reaching St. Tammany Parish. It's different for us, but it's not different for the Bible. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends, he, he gives them their marching orders. He sends them out on Christian mission. And how did it begin when he s- said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus doesn't say the world is sad and broken and longing for restoration, therefore go. He doesn't say people are going to hell, therefore go. No, he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. I'm the king. I sit on the throne of the earth, so go. The primary motive for Christian mission, for promoting and proclaiming the gospel among the lost, is not our neighbor's needs. No, the primary motivator is reality. And we see this spelled out in very clear terms in Psalm 96, which Rich so helpfully read for us earlier. Now, I want to give you, we're going to be in Psalm 96 for a couple of weeks. I want to give you a kind of 20,000 foot view of the psalm so you can see what the psalmist is doing here. So here's Psalm 96, an outline. So it begins in verse 1 with a prologue of praise inviting all creation to worship Yahweh. So everything that exists Worship Yahweh. But you'll notice, I know you're trying to fill in your blanks, but jump to the last one. Verses 11 through 13, it closes with a song of praise, calling all creation to worship Yahweh. So we have this psalm bookended on both sides with this command to everything and everyone to worship the Lord. Interesting. What do we find in the middle? In verses 2 through 6, we see a missional command to God's people. So in the context of worship, The psalmist tells God's people, go out on mission, okay? And then in verses 7 through 10, he says, now I'm going to show you what that looks like. I'm going to tell you to do it, then I'm going to show you what it looks like, all within this context of worship, of the Lord deserving the worship of all creation. And in this very mission-focused psalm, we learn that our mission to the lost should be motivated first by reality, second by neighborly Concern. They both matter, but we need to include both of them. So let's look at, 
the different pieces and parts of reality that compel us to promote and proclaim the gospel. First, one primary uh, biblical motive for mission is the reality that there's one God. There's one God. Do you know who Psalm Psalm, uh, 96 was written to? It's not a trick question. What was its purpose? Yeah, yeah, but like it got put in a book that was given to whom? All the people. Yeah, so all God's people. So Psalm 96 was a part of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, which is like the hymn book that the people of Israel used. Okay? The point I'm making here is that this psalm was not written for prophets. It wasn't written for priests. It wasn't written for professional followers of Yahweh. This psalm was written for all of God's people to sing and read and believe. There's some debate about the Great Commission. People say, well, when Jesus says go and teach and baptize, is that for all Christians to do or is that just for the apostles? I'm not going to touch on that today. This one's for everybody. (laughs) Psalm 96 is for every follower of Yahweh. It is for you. So when we get these commands and these, these imperatives, they are for you and me. And what is the first missional command that we get in verses 2 and 3. Let's look at it together. It's a command for you. Verse 2. Sing to the Lord. When we see Lord in all caps in Hebrew, it's the name of God, Yahweh. Sing to Yahweh. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. All right. We don't have all kinds of ordinations and stuff, so we can talk a little bit this morning. We slow things down. What does God tell you to do in these two verses? Say them out. What is that? Sing. Okay, what else? Tell, tell what? Tell his glory among the nations in verse 3. We see that. Declare his glory. What else? Tell of his salvation from day to day. We got one more in there. Bless his name. That's right. And there was no, Amy was right and I was wrong. The last one, declare his marvelous works among all the peoples. So praise him, bless him, declare his glory to the ends of the earth. Tell everybody about his wonderful deeds. Tell everybody about his salvation. When we think about the lostness of West St. Tammany, when we think about engaging the lost in a redemptive way, this is not usually how I think about it. These kinds of imperatives, these kinds of statements what, what I imagine, when I think about you and me promoting and proclaiming the gospel, what do we usually envision? We usually envision having to, to convince somebody that they're a sinner. You know, I, I got to convince you that you need to, to believe in Jesus. I got to have this deeply personal, painful conversation with them. That's not all what the psalmist is telling us to do. What's he saying? Make a declaration. Just tell people that God is glorious. Tell people about God's work. Sing about him. Bless him. Uh, Tell of his name. But to what ends do we speak of God to others? We just make these declarations. Is it so that they will believe in him? Is it so that they won't go to hell? What does the psalmist give as his reason, his ends, his goal in these actions? Look at verses 4 and 5. For great is the Lord, great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Why do we declare God's glories among the nations? Uh, because, because it's glorious, right? 
Because he's great. Why do we sing to him and bless his name? Because he's worthy of blessing and praise. Why do we tell the nations of his saving work? Because their gods are garbage. (laughs) They're worthless idols and Yahweh's to be feared above all gods. Why do we spread the name and, and glory and story of Jesus to the ends of the earth? Because he's the one true God. It's just reality. You're just telling people what is. I mean, we want them to believe it. But if they don't, that doesn't change reality. So we just tell them the truth. Everything that the world trusts in is garbage. There's only one God, and he's a very good God. You see how this is just a little bit different from the way we usually think about it? When Christian mission... Oops, I didn't go the right way. Oh, the thing's not going to work. There we go. When Christian mission is motivated by the reality of biblical monotheism, that there's one God... It ends up sounding like a newsflash rather than sales. A lot of the time we think of Christian mission as like being an Amway salesman. I'm sorry if anybody here works for Amway. I don't think anybody does. Where you're, you're just trying to get people to buy more, buy more, buy more. Really, it's just telling people the truth. This is just reality. This is the way the world is because I'm simply declaring what's true. I'm just telling you reality. There's one God. And every other God is an idol. It's worthless trash. You may serve those gods, but that doesn't change reality. Yahweh is the one God. He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus, and he's great. He's greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. And that reality that there's one God, there's more to it than just that. And that brings us to our next kind of reality that urges us to mission. God's glory. Another primary biblical motive for mission is the reality of God's glory. You see, it's not just that there's one God and all the others are worthless. That's true. That's reality. But the one true God, Yahweh, who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, is the most beautiful, most satisfying, most wonderful being in existence. And when you've beheld true beauty, you can't help but share that. Look again with me in our text. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to read down through 3, and then we'll jump to verse 5. Listen to the psalmist just effusively overflow with love and adoration of the Lord's beauty. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Love for God. Just absolute delight in who he is. Leads to love for neighbor. Being overtaken by the majesty, the strength, and the beauty of God motivates us to tell others. Let me demonstrate. How often do you tell other people about a great movie that you've just seen? How often do you tell other people about a new show that you're hooked on and they need to be hooked on too? How often do you tell people about a great new restaurant in town down to the very things that you ate and drank for every course? How often do you show a picture of your grandchildren with others so that they can see and delight in how adorable they are. Why do we do this? 
because we are taken by these things. They enrapture us with delight, and that's okay. That's how us humans are. But let me ask a deeper question. What is more real? What's more beautiful? What's more amazing? The mussels and linguine that I ate three weeks ago? Or the God who designed the human tongue? What's more gripping? The new uh, Top Gun or the new Knives Out sequel? Or the God who set the boundaries of the nations and wrote the story of existence? What's more real? The earthly things that we adore or Yahweh who made the heavens? If everything we say we believe about Yahweh is true, if it's real, if he's that beautiful, we can't help but tell others. Love for God, being taken with him, necessarily flows out into missional concern for neighbor. You'll want to share your delight with them. And that's what we see in this psalmist. He's so overwhelmed with the strength and the beauty and the majesty of God that he says, everybody's got to know. The whole world should be singing about this. It's fantastic. What does that teach us about Christian mission? When Christian mission is motivated by delight in God's character, it ends up sounding like worship rather than bashful stuttering. Again, when we think about engaging with the world, we think about being really nervous, and I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing. Just tell them what you love. Just tell them what you find beautiful and why. There's a great freedom in this because it's just worship born out of love for God. So either Jesus is real and grippingly glorious, or he's not. So our mission to the law should be motivated first by reality, second by neighborly concern, by the reality of God's oneness. There's only one God. He deserves all of our obedience. He made all things and owns all things. It's just reality. The second one, that he's glorious. He's beautiful. He's amazing. He deserves our worship, and everyone would have such delight if they worshiped him. That's the second reality that motivates us to mission. But here's the third one, the lordship of Jesus. So we already saw in the uh, Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. His kingship, his lordship motivates the apostles to do the work of mission. But we see the exact same idea expressed in Psalm chapter 96. So look at verse 10. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. He rules. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So the author of Psalm 96 declares one day, Yahweh is going to judge every human being. He's the king of the earth. He created it. He owns it. He sits on the throne. He sustains it. And one day he's going to judge it. Well, how does the New Testament expand that notion? The kingship of Yahweh over all reality comes to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who reigns over all. He is the one to whom all will bow the knee. Jesus is the one who will judge all the peoples with equity. Now, one question. What what is this word gospel? I keep saying this word gospel. Who knows a a very simple two-word definition? What does gospel mean? It means good news. That's right. So the English word gospel literally means good news. And in the ancient world, the New Testament writers didn't come up with this word gospel. 
The word predates the New Testament. And the word gospel was used when a new king had taken the throne. A king sits down on his throne, and a herald comes out with his trumpet. I don't know if this is like exactly how it played out. That's how I imagine it. A herald comes into town with his trumpet and announces to the, the, the town, a new king has taken the throne. Everybody submit to him. He's the king. That was the gospel. They were heralds of the good news that a king was on the throne. We're Americans. We don't like kings. That sounds like bad news. We don't want a king, right? Uh, Uh, So, how is the news that Jesus is king of everything, how is that good news? What makes the gospel good news? Again, who cares that Jesus is king as opposed to any other king? It matters because of who Jesus is and what his throne means. As we saw in verse 10, Jesus, King Jesus, will rule with equity and with justice. That alone is something to get excited about. Regardless of your, your political views, justice and equity, these aren't usually the thing we want. We want these things to happen, but these aren't often the things that actually happen in this world. But So to know there's a king who's going to rule with justice and equity, that's pretty good news. But verse 2 shows us why Jesus truly is the greatest king. So look back to verse 2. Sing to Yahweh, bless his name, tell of his salvation. From day to day. Why did King Jesus come? When he sat down on his throne after ascending to the Father's right hand, what did that accomplish? It accomplished salvation. Now we've just come out of Christmas time, we're now in the season following Epiphany, but let's think back a few weeks. What did the angel tell Joseph? The angel said, Your wife your soon to be wife Mary will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. What does Jesus' name have to do with anything? Who cares what Joseph and Mary named this child? Well, this name Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, means salvation. This is one of those fun little things. In verse 2, it actually has Jesus' name. Tell of his salvation, tell of his Jesus from day Today, But that's not actually the point I want to make. What makes the gospel good news? Who cares that Jesus is king? It matters because through him, the king, salvation has been made available. The gospel is good news because it's the announcement of a saving king's arrival and victory. It's not just that there's a king on the throne. It's that a king has come in, has slain the evil king, has done away with all of his minions, and is promising salvation to us. He has won the war. So what is good about this news? Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. Injustice will one day be replaced with justice. Hunger, poverty, sickness, it's all to be done away with. Everything that you want and everything that your neighbors truly want has been made available through King Jesus through his rule, through his reign, through his judging work at the end of days. You see how different that sounds? You see how this is not just good news, but like the best news that anyone could ever hear? If you found out that there was a billionaire who had offered to pay off the mortgages of anyone who wrote him a letter, what would you do? 
You'd write a letter. And then you'd tell everybody you love about this crazy good news. Well, guess what? We know the king who defeated death and injustice and brokenness and even Satan himself. That's good news. That's great news. And it's worth repeating. And it doesn't even matter if people accept it or not. It's still the truth. It's great news. And we should want everyone to hear it. So we, we proclaim it. When Christian mission is motivated by the victorious lordship of Jesus, it ends up sounding like the only thing worth mentioning ever. <laughs> you see what I'm driving at in all this? Last week I told you I think God's inviting you to own and play your part in redeeming West St. Tammany. I recognize that that very idea to most, if not all of you, including myself, are terrified of that. Well, what's going to be expected of me? What's God going to require me to do or to say? Today I'm just trying to take some of the fear of that out of that by reorienting us. What if we started thinking about the gospel like it's the most fundamental thing in reality? What if we were able to talk about God's saving work the same way we talk about everything else that's normal or real or enjoyable to us? Here's the question. Do you believe that there is only one God? Do you believe that that God who made himself known in Jesus, do you believe that he's the most wonderful being in existence? Do you find him glorious and lovable and thrilling? Do you realize that he sits on the throne of the earth and that one day, that he's actually corralling history toward a day of judgment when everything is going to be made right? That's just reality. And it raises the question, do you believe it? Y'all know me. I have some very passionate uh, feelings and beliefs about imaginary things. I could have some very passionate arguments with you about Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Just like some of you have strong opinions about the New Orleans Saints or the best kind of flour to use when you're baking. Is the gospel as real to us as those things? Maybe the real problem underlying St. Tammany's lostness is that the people filling St. Tammany's churches are lost. We've got lots of ideas about God that we like to think about and talk about, lots of philosophy and systematic theology, but maybe a lot of us don't know God. We don't really live as though there is one God. We don't enjoy him and bask in his glory. We don't submit to his kingship. Well, if those things are true of our lives individually, that would explain the greater problem in our community. And each of us has to search our own hearts. Do you believe that and, and, and trust that and, and live out of these realities that there's only one God, Yahweh God of the Bible? Do you believe and trust and really experience and delight in the fact that he's glorious? And do you believe he's king, that he is in charge and he's bringing all things toward a beautiful end? Chew on that this week. Next week we'll come back. We'll get back into the model of Christian mission that we get in Psalm 96. And we're going to finally begin to dig into what am I actually challenging you to do? What's it going to look like to really play your part in the redemption of West St. Tammany? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Help us to love you. <laughs> we believe. Help our unbelief. Oh, Holy Spirit, 
make the character of your triune Godhead so beautiful and gripping to us that we would be overwhelmed with passion for your name. Lord, for those who are here whose faith is weak, who are just coming to terms with this idea of Jesus is my king and there's only one God and he's beautiful, I pray, Lord, that you will mercifully this week show more of yourself to them. And, Lord, if there are those who are here who don't know you, Lord, they've, they've surrounded themselves with religiosity and with ideas that have not yet penetrated their hearts. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a saving work and press upon them that they have no faith and that they must come to Christ, that they must have a new heart that is inflamed with love for you. Lord, for those who are here who are suffering and the flame of their love and their faith is flickering. We pray that you will come near them and comfort them, that they may be taken with your goodness. Lord, all of us are in many different places, and so we ask, O shepherd of our souls, that you would shepherd us to Christ, where in him we might find our greatest satisfaction and joy, that it might transform our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.